Well, good evening, everyone. We are drawing near to the end of Mark's gospel this evening. And so tonight and next week, we arrive at, in many ways, everything that the gospel has been building towards the climax of all that Mark writes and records for us. So if you have a Bible, then please turn to Mark chapter 15. If you were handed one on the way in, you'll find our section this evening on page 852-852, Mark chapter 15. And as we turn there, I'll pray for us as we open God's word, and then I'll read verses 21 through to 39. Father, we pray that as we study your word this evening, you would show us Jesus and that we would cry out that he is the Son of God. He is our King. He is our Messiah. And to do so with willing hearts and thankful hearts. In his name we pray and ask. Amen. Mark chapter 15 then, verse 21. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry Jesus' cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved himself. He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two, from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him 
saw that in this way he breathed his last. He said, truly, this man was the Son of God. Well, before this past week, not many of us would have known the names Judith and Natalie Raynan. I don't think they would have ever imagined their faces being internationally recognized either. And yet on Friday, their names and faces appeared on every single news feed across the world. We got alerts on our phones. We saw their faces on our screens. Why? Well, amidst all of the horror, all of the heartache over the situation in the Middle East, these two women, a mother and a daughter, were released as hostages, released from their captivity to instead walk free bound by their captors no more. And we can only imagine, I think, the sense of joy, the sense of freedom that they felt, knowing that they were no longer in danger, no longer captive, but instead safe, free. And in our verses this evening, Mark brings news of what he would dare to call a much more important release from captivity. Mark brings us the good news of liberty available to every single one of us. A release that brings an eternal joy, an eternal freedom, where we too are no longer in danger, but instead safe. We've seen throughout Mark's gospel that Jesus' message, Jesus' command, Jesus' plea is for us to repent of our sins, to turn away from our rebellion against God, and to trust in Jesus instead for forgiveness. Jesus has come, Mark tells us in chapter 10, as Samuel read out earlier on, not to serve himself, but to be, not to be served himself rather, but to serve, and to give his life to ransom many from the consequences of the sin that has gripped their hearts and gripped their souls. And in chapter 15 this evening, Mark wants us to see not just the great price for salvation that Jesus has paid, but also the guaranteed promise of the salvation that Jesus has won for us. These are harrowing verses for us to read and study, but verses that show us not only how much Jesus endured in order to secure our forgiveness, but also just how secure we are in Jesus' forgiveness. We read of the king who is shamed, the king who is forsaken, so that sinners like us might be forgiven and might be reconciled. That's the first thing for us to see this evening. Jesus is shamed and forsaken so that sinners might be forgiven and reconciled. We might remember from last week the scorn of the religious authorities, the scorn of the Roman authorities as they mock Jesus, as they deride him as the so-called king of the Jews, now in the hands of the soldiers to be crucified. And as we draw near the moment of Jesus' death, we see the same mockery, the same scorn endure to the end. Mark's eyewitness account tells us that the Roman soldiers, verse 21, compel a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, coming in from the country to carry Jesus' cross. It's indicative of Jesus' physical condition, no longer able to carry his own cross. But it's also indicative of the abandonment that he faces. 
None of his disciples who said that they would follow him to the end are around to follow him to the end. None of the disciples who said they would follow him to the end are around to carry his cross for him. And so alone and friendless, he climbs towards the hill upon which he will die. They crucify Jesus, verse 24, dividing his garments among them as the soldiers plunder the spoils of their victory against the alleged king of the Jews. Those who pass by, verse 29, deride Jesus, wagging their heads in disdain and saying, you, you who would destroy the temple, who would rebuild it in three days, save yourself then, go on, come down from the cross. And then verse 32, it's the turn of the religious authorities. Let the king of Israel, they gleefully cry, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And then those who are crucified alongside him join in in the deafening chorus of insults. Crowds, centurions, chief priests, all of them combine again, just like we saw in our previous section, to make sure that Jesus is utterly discredited as the man who claims to be the king of the Jews. And what follows in verses 33 through to 39 are two cries from Jesus, two signs from heaven, and then two responses from those who watch on, all of which helps us to understand the spiritual reality of what is happening in these verses. And I put that little sequence on the screen there, the sign and then the cry and the response. In the first of those two sequences, we see the sign of darkness covering the whole land in verse 33, a three-hour darkness, after which we hear the cry of Jesus on the cross, verse 34, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We then witness the response of the bystanders after seeing the sign and hearing the cry. Jesus shouts, Eloi, Eloi, the crowd mishear his cries as Elijah, and so they try and keep Jesus alive a little bit longer offering him sour wine, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. Perhaps they do this to continue to deride Jesus. Perhaps they simply do this in order to see if anything spectacular is going to happen next. Either way, the cry of torment from Jesus on the cross is met with mockery and misunderstanding. And in the second of those two sequences, we see again a sign, a cry, and a response. Verse 37, Jesus utters a loud cry, breathing his last. And then we see the sign in the temple as the curtain is torn in two from top to bottom. That's in verse 38. And then we witness the response of just one bystander, a Roman soldier, nameless, who sees the way that Jesus breathed his last and says aloud, truly, this man was the Son of God. An entirely different reaction to anyone else present at Jesus' crucifixion. And so amidst the clamor of what's going on, Mark has selected these incidents for us to study very, very carefully. It's clear that something meaningful is happening it's clear that something supernatural is happening. The question is, what is happening at the cross? 
And as we understand more and more fully what's going on in these verses, Mark wants us to see that this is not, as some might suggest, the premature termination of Jesus' mission to save sinners. The religious and Roman authorities have not won. But instead, this is the full revelation and fulfillment of Jesus' mission to save sinners. This is not mission failed. This is mission complete. Jesus' final moments, as recorded for us by Mark, are saturated with a significance that changes the eternity of an individual. And they are crucial for us to understand for ourselves if we are going to respond appropriately to Jesus' death on the cross. Jesus is the king who reveals and fulfills God's salvation plan for his people. That's the second thing for us to see this evening. We saw last week that Jesus willingly stays silent so that he might fulfill the promises that God makes to his people in the Old Testament. Promises that God makes that he would send someone to step in as our rescuer king. Last week we saw that Jesus willingly goes to the cross, refusing to contest the false charges that are leveled against him, so that the guilty, like Barabbas, might go free. And this evening, in our verses, we see the very same revelation, the very same fulfillment of God's plan, the climax of a salvation story spanning thousands of years, as Jesus willingly subjects himself to his own death on the cross. And there are so many places amidst the chorus of Old Testament voices that we could turn to in order to fully understand what's happening in Mark chapter 15. But let me just point out the two on which Mark focuses the most. The first one is Psalm 22. Jesus' first cry on the cross is lifted straight from verse 1 of that psalm. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22 is a psalm that foreshadows the king of God's people, encircled by a company of evildoers, a company of evildoers that pierce his hands and his feet, who stare and gloat over the king who can count all of his bones, enemies who divide his garments among them, casting lots for his clothing. Events that we can so clearly see unfolding here at Jesus' death in Mark chapter 15. And yet the cry of the king in Psalm 22 is not, why have they forsaken me? But rather, why have you forsaken me? As he cries out to God. Our King Jesus has committed no sin. He has only ever known the perfect union and perfect love of God the Father. And so the only reason that God the Father would ever forsake God the Son would be if God the Son were to take something on himself from outside of his sinless self that would incur the wrath, the righteous judgment, the forsaking of the Father. The only thing that could ever mean that Jesus were forsaken is not the physical pain of the cross, but rather to bear the sinfulness of others. Sins which have been imputed onto him, transferred across from sinners like you and me onto the Son of God on the cross. As Jesus hangs crucified, his cry on the cross, the darkness that covers the land, both show us that this transfer of our sin onto him, sin which is then judged by the Father as Jesus is forsaken, 
That is exactly what has taken place at the cross 2,000 years ago. The darkness, the sign that we see from God over the land, has been mentioned a few times before in the history between God and his people. Perhaps the most memorable one, the best-known one, is when God judges the nation of Egypt in order to ransom and release his people from their chains. And the darkness here again in our verses symbolizes God's judgment, not on a nation this time, but a judgment cast on our sin, carried to the cross by Jesus instead of us, so that we may be free. His cry of torment, forsaken by his father, shows us that he really, truly has taken on all of our sins, all of our transgressions on himself. And he hangs on the cross, forsaken by the Father, facing the full righteous judgment that we ought to face for the sins that we have committed. And yet he faces it instead. The second Old Testament voice here is Isaiah chapter 53. And in Isaiah chapter 53, the servant of God is described as one who has borne our griefs, who has carried our sorrows, smitten by God and afflicted. Isaiah 53 describes a servant of God who is pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. And the consequences are that his chastisement would bring us peace. By his wounds, we would be healed. And so if the first cry from our faithful Jesus is a cry of torment, the second cry from Jesus in our verses this evening is a cry of triumph. Verse 37, Jesus utters a loud cry and breathed his last. With his final breath, he completes his work. He has fully borne the griefs of his people. He was fully smitten by God, fully, finally pierced for our transgressions and iniquities, bringing us peace, bringing us the full measure of spiritual healing for the souls of those who are his. See, as Jesus takes our sin upon himself on the cross, as he is crushed in our place, he fully absorbs the penal consequences of that sin. He doesn't drink the wine that was offered to him by soldiers or bystanders, but he does drink the full wrath of God the Father for our sins. And in so doing, he brings us peace with God. The war between a holy God and sinful humanity is over. Peace has been brokered by Jesus at the cost of his own life. And if we're still in doubt, look at the sign which takes place at the temple in verse 38. Only the high priest would have ever been allowed beyond the temple curtain, into the holiest place in the temple, representing God's presence. And he would only have been allowed to go in there once a year to atone for the sins of God's people, to ask for God's people to be forgiven. However, that is a task that has now been completed, fulfilled, once for all, by the great high priest of his people, Jesus and by the work that he has done. And so the curtain is torn from top to bottom, 
from God to man. A barrier that would have previously said, stay out, is now open to both Jew and Gentile, beckoning sinners from everywhere and everywhere to come and be forgiven by the completed atoning work of Jesus on the cross. All of the Old Testament prophecies, all of the Old Testament promises, foreshadowing everything that the Old Testament mentions about God's plan to offer his people peace, God's plan to bring his people back to him, God's plan to call his people to him, have been fully revealed, fully fulfilled in Jesus. That's the second thing for us to see from these verses this evening. And so as I draw to a close, Mark makes it clear that there are two responses to Jesus' death on the cross. The first is the unyielding response of those who deride Jesus, the unyielding response of those who idly stand by to see what happens next, curious onlookers or active mockers. Jesus' death on the cross here falls onto spiritually blind eyes. There is no sorrow for sin, no desire to acknowledge Jesus as the king, no desire to acknowledge him as the savior that he claims to be. And then by contrast, and seemingly against all the odds, there is the response of the Roman centurion. Throughout his gospel, Mark has used blindness and sight as a means of explaining the spiritual status and the hearts of those who meet Jesus. And so Mark very deliberately says, verse 37, sorry, in verse 39, when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. Here is the unlikeliest recipient of spiritual sight. Here is the unlikeliest of converts. Mark introduced his gospel in chapter one with the claim that Jesus is the Messiah, the claim that Jesus is the Son of God. And the first of those titles was uttered in Mark chapter eight as Jesus gradually gives spiritual sight to a Jewish fisherman, Simon Peter, who cries out, you're the Messiah. The second of those titles is uttered here in Mark chapter 15 as Jesus gradually gives spiritual sight not to a Jewish fisherman this time, but to a Gentile centurion soldier. Here is a Roman, someone who would have almost certainly taken part in the crucifixion of Jesus, seeing and believing that which the religious authorities, that which the passers-by could not see, could not believe. Earlier, we heard those who passed by deride Jesus, wagging their heads, saying to him, you who would destroy the temple, you who would rebuild it in three days, save yourself, come down from the cross. And yet the Roman centurion seems to understand, perhaps not fully, perhaps just in an embryonic way, that on the cross, Jesus is destroying the temple and it will be rebuilt in three days when he rises again, as we'll see next Sunday evening a more glorious and everlasting temple where God's people will meet with God forever. The religious authorities were delighted to mock Jesus on the cross, crying, let the king of Israel come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. 
And yet the Roman centurion seems to understand, again, perhaps not fully, perhaps only in an embryonic way, that it was not Jesus coming down from the cross that would supernaturally spark spiritual sight and faith in the lives of sinners, but staying on the cross and dying on the cross in their place that would bring spiritual sight and faith in the lives of sinners. And so with the words of the centurion ringing in our ears, that this man truly was the son of God. As we consider the king who is shamed, forsaken, yet who reveals and fulfills God's plan to reconcile sinners to the God who made them. As we gaze upon the death of the Messiah King, as we gaze upon the son of God, Mark's question to us this evening is this, in whom do we trust to pay the price for our sins? Has Jesus paid that price on my behalf? Or am I still standing by to see what happens next? Am I perhaps even making a mockery of his death? If you're sat here this evening and you have not asked Jesus to pay the price of your sins, then he has not taken the measure of God's wrath against sin in your place you are still on a collision course with the full payment that your sin demands. A collision course with the darkness of God's righteous judgment, the eternal torment of hell and separation from Jesus and his people. And yet Jesus' cry on the cross, the tearing of the curtain in two, means that you, as you sit here this evening, you are invited as you read these words, to ask Jesus to take your sin upon himself, to ask him to pay the full price as he willingly offers to do, and to cry out that he really is the son of God, taking your place on the cross. Do not refuse that offer. Do not reject him. If someone as unlikely as a centurion can accept the gospel message as they look at Jesus' death on the cross, so can you, so can I. If you are sitting here this evening and you have asked Jesus to pay the price of your sins, let me remind us of those two things that I mentioned at the start before we stop and pray. First, as we ponder the great price that Jesus had to pay, I think our attitude towards sin should turn increasingly every single day to one of disgust. As I gaze upon the cross of Christ, I want to serve and love myself less. I want to serve others more. I want to pray and act more and more in line with God's will, to love him, to love others, not to love myself, not to serve myself. As the days and the weeks and the months go by, I realize more and more that the sin that I commit is that which Jesus took on himself on the cross. I'm splashing around in the very substance that Jesus came to rescue me from, to save me from its consequences at great personal cost to himself. See, as I gaze upon the cross, my desires are changed. I want to partake in sin less and less as I understand the price that had to be paid, the real spiritual torment, the agony that forsaken Jesus had to go through to reconcile me to him. But then secondly, 
I also ponder the guaranteed promise of my salvation. Jesus doesn't die on the cross, come back to life again, turn to me and say, okay, how are you going to contribute towards your salvation? I've done my bit. Time for you to pay yours. There is nothing left for me to pay. The price is not shared between me and him. There is no purgatory, no need for me to top up my salvation, nothing that I have done or will do that has not been covered by the blood of Jesus on the cross. I can know, as any freed captives know, the full freedom, liberty, and security of my release from sin. Our appreciation for our King Jesus deepens further and further as we understand our sin more and more and yet see that we bear that sin no more, that he has taken it on the cross, that he was forsaken instead of me. Our appreciation for him deepens when we see the way that we ought to never be welcomed by God and yet we see the ripped curtain at the temple and the God who I once didn't know and love, the God who was once at war with me as his enemy, as a sinner that I am, that God now beckons me and beckons every believer towards him to be reconciled, to be forgiven forever. Truly, he is the son of God, the rescuer king, offering to pay the full price for my sin and your sin in our place on the cross. Before we finish our time together this evening, we're going to remember Jesus' death in a moment. Let me pause there, and then I'll lead us in prayer before we continue. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he truly is the Son of God, stepping into our place, forsaken by the Father, paying the price that our sin deserves. Father, please help us to understand the price that was paid. Help us to understand how offensive our sin is. And yet help us to know with certainty, tonight, going forwards, that if we have placed our faith and trust in you, that we are fully, finally forgiven forever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.